Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Yeah, Nike, as always, great to see you and uh, great to see our viewers. Uh, as everyone knows, we like to highlight Black excellence and show off uh, some people that you may not know but are doing great things for their community. And all of this emanated from something Nike and I and a group of fellows started, gosh, 30 years ago when we were at Harvard Business School. We created this film called The Invisible Men. And there was a small group of guys that was part of that original team. And today we have one of those men, David Hackney. Hi, David. How are you doing? Well, how are you? It's so good. So good to see you, man. Thank you. It's been how many? That was what, 1991? 92? 92. 92. 92. And uh, you've had some uh, an amazing journey since then. Now, you were not at the business school, so you'll, you'll, you'll tell us about what your journey has been. But now you are a representative of the 11th Legislative District, uh, South King County, uh, South King County in Washington State, a, an elected official. So, you know, the voters decided you were the man. And, uh, and so tell us a little, so before, yeah, before we get to present day, Tell us a little bit about, you know, David Hackney before you were the David Hackney, even before Harvard. You know, were there any experiences that you had uh, years ago that were kind of a defining moment in helping you think about your pathway into the world? Sure, there were a lot. So, you know, uh, in high school, I saw myself as more of a student athlete than a scholar. And um, but I wasn't recruited by the big schools, but I was recruited by a lot of the Ivy League schools. And I chose Cornell. And one of the defining moments for me was freshman year homecoming. There was a gentleman who was on the football team. He was extremely popular. He was a DJ. He was from New York City, which was, which was a big deal in those days. And we learned that he, uh, his job after graduation was that he was an assistant manager at a Burger King. And he had been one of the more popular kids. And when we said to him, what, what happened? He called a group of uh, young, of the young uh, black freshmen together and said, you know, this doesn't mean anything, if you, this opportunity, if you waste it. All I did was prove to people that I didn't deserve to be here. I partied too much. I had poor grades. Nobody wanted to hire me. I couldn't get into graduate school. Don't waste this opportunity. He could have hit me in the face with a frying pan. Because at the time, I was wasting that opportunity. I was more interested in you know, what parties I was getting invited to and who wanted to go out with me. And I was, school was secondary. Uh, playing time was more important to me. Uh, those kinds of things. And after I said that, after I saw that, I realized that just going, even the, I, the privilege of going to Cornell University, if you don't work hard and do well, uh, you just wasted that opportunity. And the second example, also freshman year, a friend of mine who I thought of as a pretty social guy, hard partier. Um, uh, and I just said, I thought you had to make a decision between having a social life or a grade point average. And I had chosen social life. And he, he, he mentioned to me that he was on the Dean's list. And I said, that's impossible. 
there's no party I've been to that you haven't been to. He said, when I, it goes, I work when it's time to work and I play when it's time to play. I get more work done and have more fun than anyone else. And I followed that guy around for a while and, and, uh, I, and, and copied his study habits. And I went from barely escaping probation. Cornell um, has a, a, a strong uh, weeding out system. So if you get below a 2.0, you are on probation. If you get below a 1.5, you just take a semester off. If you get below a 1.0, you're in the squares club. That means when you square your grade point average, it gets smaller. You have to take a year off. And I was proud that I had not been suspended. That was my achievement. And I, my parents did not know much about the Ivy League. They had been to college, but not in the Ivy League. And I lied to them and said, Mom, Dad, this is the Ivy League. You know, a 2.1 is really good. They grade different here. But when he also said that his parents worked so hard to uh, put him through school, that he would not embarrass them and shame them by giving bad grades. Again, frying pan moment. I knew at that point I had to change. And I went from barely, uh, you know, escaping probation to the dean's list every semester after that. Are you still, wow. are you still in touch with this person? I am. He's a, he's a great guy. The, the other guy, I'm not. The first guy, I'm unfortunately not. The second guy, I am. And he doesn't recall. He doesn't, he, there wasn't, he just, wow. but he did recall that's how he got through. He's also a lawyer. He went to University of Michigan and has been general counsel of some major corporations. He's done very, very well for himself. What do you think would have happened if you had not met him or been influenced by him? There were so many. I mean, it was, it was, it was tragic. Cornell accepts a lot and flunks out a lot. One of my best friends, um, when we had a minority student a, a party at the graduation, uh, he said, half the class of 1987 is actually the class of 1988. And the other half completely flunked out. And it was not, and we all laughed, but it was not. We, we go through the list of the number of friends into the dozens that disappeared out of Cornell. They flunked out, failed out, and they either from shame or whatever, we lost touch with them. And, um, and some of them recovered. Uh, one of my friends, um, who's now the uh, CFO of a national rental car company, he was one of those gentlemen that we thought he came back. He came, he changed majors, you know. So, you know, what I think about it is also, too, is, you know, you're never out until you give up. You know, sometimes failure helps you learn what you need to do to be successful next time. And the more resilient you are, I think you have the better chance of success. Um, one thing is we don't have role models. I didn't have, you know, my parents were wonderful, but they, you know, they went to, to college, but they didn't finish but they didn't know anything about the culture that, that, that I had dropped into. And um, so it was up to me to find mentors. Some mentors were African-American, some were not. You know, that's another thing I learned. You know, mentors are about people that care about you and have something to teach you. And they, some of them are African-American, some are not. Some are men, some are not. Some, you know, it's about who you have a connection with, but it's not their responsibility, it's yours to find people to lead you where you need to be. Well said, David. Now, I've got to, of course, comment that you two are at Cornell at the same time, at least a couple years, right? I was going to say, because I, I was going to say, like, I was class of 85. Yeah, I remember you. Yeah, yeah. You were another guy I looked up to. You were a big deal then. Oh. <laughs> I didn't remember you. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't hit. When I saw that, I knew you weren't there. Yeah, I definitely remember you. You remember me? 
Stop it. Stop it. No, but do you remember him? My, my, my head was that. Look, man, I went to Cornell and I said, you know, I, everyone was rushing fraternities. I said, well, I'm a GDI. Do you remember what GDI stood for? Goddamn independent. Goddamn independent. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I was like, how can we not take advantage? So I had a fun time, but I hit the books, man. And you most certainly did. A lot of my, a lot, and I was in, in the engineering school, a lot of my yeah. black male classmates. Oh, a lot of people. Right. Because, by the way, included Robert Smith, included Robert Smith, who's now a billionaire. Um, yeah. But a lot of our other classmates uh, did not make it. And um, it was a really tough time because I, I remember talking to guys like, come on, man, this, you know, I, I get that we're trying to live one life, but we're here for a much bigger opportunity and what we can do for many people that come after us. And well, you uh, probably not- know the first guy that I'm talking about, I really forget his, from, I think it was Reggie somebody, but I remember it was, I was at a, a black event at homecoming freshman year when he called a bunch of us together and told us the story. In fact, he was not from New York, he was from Chicago. And when he said he was an assistant manager at Burger King, cause we, you know, he had been a DJ, he had just been a super popular dude on campus. He said that he all the parties. I think he was Greek. I can't remember, but I just remember him uh, giving us that advice. And I remember all of us walking away going, holy moly. I mean, it was real. I mean, we had friends, I mean, who didn't make it past freshman year, didn't make it past everything you just said. And like, where, you know, we, we come back to school. Where is so-and-so? I'm just like, they didn't make it, you know? And um yeah, it's, it's not like a war. It's just that I think that they weren't, you know, we didn't lose them, but I think um, uh, it was uh, kind of embarrassed, right? They didn't, we're all moving forward and they're not. Yeah. We ha- I'll never forget a gentleman from New York City who uh, was a Sigma. He's from New York City and his name came up on the sanitation list, you know, to be a sanitation worker. And he was a junior. He said, that's all I was looking for because those jobs and those are unionized jobs in New York City and they pay really high and you don't have to work a full day. And he was good. And I'm, I, I was like, that's a bold move. You know, I mean, look, if that was his choice and he, that's what he wanted to do, I mean, to some degree, more power to him. I, I hope it didn't come because he felt that was his only yeah. choice. And then just to move forward. So after Cornell, so I, I really increased my grade point average, but I knew that it would be more helpful for me to go to law school to do some work experience. So I ended up working in a couple of manufacturing plants in labor relations, you know, on the factory floor. And there was a, uh, a guy who was not a great friend of mine at Cornell, but he's I'm from Cleveland originally, and he's from Cleveland. His name was Tony Paul. If you remember Tony Paul. Tony Paul was class of 86. So okay. Tony Paul befriended me when I, got to, when I got to Cleveland, even though we weren't great friends, you know, on campus. Became one of my best friends. And we're driving down to the flats with Tony Paul and a bunch of his friends. And he mentioned a young woman named, remember Misha? Oh my uh, gosh. And Misha had gotten into Harvard Law School, right? I didn't even consider Harvard Law School. I'm driving down to the flats and Tony Paul goes, you know, Misha got into Harvard Law School. I was driving. I hit the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> I know Misha. She's a fine person and very smart. But if Misha can get into Harvard Law School, so can I. And that's Boom. what I set my goal. Boom. Like, I was like, that's doable. She, Because I thought of Harvard Law School as something so exalted, so high. I wasn't even considering it.
But I said, and Misha, she was, again, I'm, this is no, she listened to this. This was not any disrespect. I just said to myself, okay, that's a doable, that's a doable thing. Wow. And I began to really think about and talk to people about what needed to be done. And really it was, you know, your grade point average is your grade point average. So you distinguish yourself by the LSATs. And you, and that is not a test of intelligence. It's a test of work. Right. So I got a system. I went to the, one of those preparation classes. I had a system that I was there Sunday evenings from, you know, in the evening and Monday through Thursday from the time I got off the work till it closed doing practice exams. Um, Friday night I took off and Saturday we had a four hour class and Saturday night I took off. I got rid of my television. I got rid of all social events. I had two and a half months in which I did nothing. And I got into the 90th percentile, which is kind of what you needed as a minimum to get into Harvard Law School in those days. But I set a goal and I got really focused on it. And I found that I, that's something I can do. I'm much better with a goal. Uh, in law school, uh, a friend of mine challenged me because I've always been one to gain weight, as you can see now. But um, he challenged me uh, to run a marathon. And I said, I'm not running a marathon, but you can't either. He said, I can and you can't. <laughs> My first marathon was a disaster. I did pass out. It took me five and a half hours. But I was so embarrassed, I decided I was going to train and do it right the next time. I ended up running nine marathons, and my best time was three hours and five minutes, which was under seven minutes a mile. Outstanding. And, uh, now, of course, I did not continue, as you can see. It looks like I ate the, the guy that uh, there, but, uh, <laughs> but I had a goal. And when I, when I put my mind to it, I focused. I got the advice I needed, the, what, the, what a, a, a training regimen was like what equipment was needed. I got a training partner. Her name is Dale Brick. Uh, she's still one of my best friends. We lived on opposite sides of Cambridge and we made it to Charles River at this boathouse at 6.30 in the morning. And the idea was you were not to let the other person go. If you weren't gonna make it, you had to call the other person and say, you're not gonna make it. Well, both of us were so stubborn that we either each of us refused to, if you don't make the call, you gotta be there. That was the thing. So we didn't miss any training days. And then we learned how to run, and I got faster and faster and more competitive. I ran a marathon in Paris. You know, I ran Boston. You know, I ran Long Beach. You know, and I ran Marine Corps multiple times in, in Washington, D.C. And, and speaking of, uh, I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, speaking of uh, role models, um, freshman, first year of law school, um, you know, one thing about Harvard Law School is that there's not really competitive grading. So it's not like Cornell. It's the opposite of Cornell. They say, look to your left, look to your right. Everybody's going to graduate in three years as long as you show up. But we did have semester or year-long finals that were three, four, sometimes five hours, and that was the only grade for the course. Mm. So there were still a lot of pressure. And civil procedure was a one-year exam, and it was open book. And there was an African-American classmate of mine who was not very social and was, you know, was, I could tell was really struggling. She'd made the poor choice of bringing too many books. The idea is you, you, you can't, it's only, you have to study even with an open book. She brought too many books and she had them piled up on her desk and they fell to the floor at some point. And she was sitting next to me and she started crying. So in the middle of this four and a half hour exam, I put my pencil down got down, helped her pick her books up, put it on the table. Nice gesture. 
go back to my exam. When the exam is over, the proctor refused to accept my exam or her exam, accused me of cheating. Well, you can't cheat much, in a, you know, and so it was the last exam of the, of the season. Everybody was flying out to jobs because, you know, most of us get jobs at Harvard Law School and law firms across the country. There was a huge party, but I was depressed because, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is you get caught cheating, then, then you can you can get kicked out, you can fail, you know, uh, you know, and I was just mortified. And I hadn't cheated. And I, as I was walking across campus with my head down, I bumped into my criminal law professor and who was someone who had taken a, a, a liking to me. And I said, she said, what's wrong? And first of all, she was walking with her mother. She said, mom, this is one of my favorite students, David Hackney. And I said, professor, I just, I told her the story. And she says, it's over. She goes, I'm in charge of the administrative review board for discipline. Your case was just dismissed. Go have fun. And she has been, she had been a mentor. She wrote my recommendations. She guided me through. She taught me things like, I remember even as in mid-career, she was like, don't take jobs for money or prestige. You're going to get that when, if, if you want it. Take jobs where you can learn something. Make sure you are challenging yourself. Because there's going to come a time in your life when you're going to want to do something, be responsible for something, and you're going to want those skills. So again, Professor Kathleen Sullivan, she's the dean of Stanford Law School. You know, she is a, uh, you know, white, you know, gay professor who uh, reached out to me, saw something in me. And so those are the role models in your life and having enough sense to listen and made a huge, huge difference in my career choices and a lot of other things that I've done. And again, invaluable, invaluable, you know. So. Incredibly inspiring, David, thank you. I mean, you, know, you think you know somebody, but you don't know somebody. And that was, you know, I, I remember you from 1992. And, and the one thing I would say about David Hackney is that you were about business, you were about accomplishing things. And that's, that's what you just walked us through, which was very inspiring. Well, before we get to our speed round, I want to ask, what led you to, to serve? What led you to become a, a congressperson? Well, I'm actually, I'm not in Congress. I'm in the state legislature. Although, uh, I, I like what you're thinking. I like what you're <laughs> um, you know, I, I tell you what, you know, politics, you know, I, we grew up in the, uh, as children, in the Nixon-Watergate era, where politicians are kind of like policemen now. Right, it was not something that I didn't look up to. Interesting. And I, what I saw with politics, I mean, I became a federal prosecutor, and I saw politicians as targets. You know, people that were getting bribes and corruption. Um, it was, and then I lived in the D.C. area for about 15 years as a federal prosecutor, and in other legal uh, roles. And again, I was not inspired in D.C. I happened to take a job with Amazon in Seattle as an attorney, and. Um, Amazon and I did not have the same value system, and uh, I, uh, I left after uh, less than two years. And I started I, with, the, with the settlement money or severance money, if you call it, I started volunteering. I had some time to, to, to really take a step back and decide what I wanted to do. I got really involved in this organization called Tabor 100, which is like a, a, a chamber of commerce for a small minority-owned businesses and the Alliance for Gun Responsibility, which is an organization. I started volunteering on initiatives they had, uh, and both organizations eventually asked me to join their board. Then I began testifying in Olympia 
getting to know politicians. I got to know the governor and his staff, Governor Inslee. And I just made a decision in 2020, which, which I expected to be the largest Democratic voter turnout, probably in, maybe in our lifetime, that if I was ever going to run, I was going to run in 2020. And I had initially targeted a district in downtown Seattle, which would have been very difficult and very expensive. And uh, a, a black political consultant who uh, refused to work with me on that in that district, uh, a couple months later, called me up and said, you know, there's some opportunities in South King County. South King County has had, because of the gentrification in Seattle, a lot of low income and people of color had to move from Seattle to South King County. So it's now a majority minority. It's an immigrant district. It has lower average median income. It has more students on a free and reduced meal. Um, it experienced 70, 77% of all the gun violence in King County, South King County. Wow. And there was a rep who had been elected 18 years ago when it was all white, and he has been asleep at the wheel. And someone said he does not, he didn't do anything bad, but he does not have the gravitas of an incumbent because no one knows him. And I took on an 18-year Democratic incumbent, and I beat him badly. I beat him in every precinct in my district, and I beat him by 20,000 votes. Wow. Wait, and, uh, you, ran, you ran, was this in a primary, or did you run as a Republican against him? No, no, a Democrat. Basically, it's a nonpartisan. So we ran, there were three of us in the uh, primary, and then my, my uh, reward for beating him in the primary was I got to face him again in the general. Oh, and, I see. Okay. So I beat him in the primary, and I beat him in the general. And I will tell you, not to, not to brag, because it was probably more on what he didn't do than what I did do. Everyone told me, don't do it. It was hard to, I could not raise money in this district. I had to raise money. You guys, lucky you didn't get called. I had to raise money. <laughs> no, I, I sent you something. I'm sorry. I, I, you didn't, Akina. You're right. I did call you. I apologize. I, <laughs> and I didn't get the memo. I didn't get the memo. I, I had to call college and law school and family and D.C. friends because everybody, not that they liked my opponent, but they're like, you can't be an 18-year Democratic. That's just not done. Incumbents win 98% of the time. He, he laughed at my candidacy. Mm. There's some black wow. guy from Harvard uh, who doesn't even be, not, hasn't even lived here? Who taken me on? He thought he's going to crush me. And so, really, what it is is the opportunity. It is to serve. You can make a difference. You know, it's easy to be uh, you know negative and pessimistic. Um, never ask how the law or sausage is made. But you know, it's about it's about educating yourself on the issues, advocating for your issues, and then you have to close. You've got to close with federal legislators to get the vote. You got to close with your uh, community so they'll support you. You know, they were like, don't vote for taxes in this district. I'm going to vote for taxes. We had a capital gains tax that focused on the very wealthy, generally people making over $600,000 a year. Um, and so it was for the $250,000 of profit and capital gains. It excluded homes, retirements, and small businesses. So these are people that are legitimately wealthy. And the, and the taxes, the 7% is going to raise, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that's going to be focused on uh, early uh, child care um, and education, things that my district desperately needs those resources for. So rather than shy away from a tax vote, I stepped up. Not only did I vote for it, I publicly advocated for it. 
I made it clear that everyone knows that that's what David Hackney is all about, making change in his district. And we're going to have to find ways. You can't do it without revenue. I would love to wave a magic arm and say, well, I didn't say, you know, but if you want to get things done, and I do, and we need to. There's, you know, there's a lot of issues. We did some of the most um, impactful police accountability bills in the country. We banned uh, uh, chokeholds and neck kneels. We banned the use of tear gas um, crowds. We banned the use of police dogs. They can use their nose, but they can't use their teeth. We put in pursuit policies. Um, we, we, we initiated a new standard for use of force of police that they must show that they've used every other de-escalation effort before they use violence. You know, we put in all of these, we put in a decertification process. So if you get fired in one police uh, district, you cannot move to another district because we will take your law enforcement license from you. You know, we, we recognize we had lost the trust of, our, of the people most impacted by police violence. We also recognize you cannot police a community without their consent. They need to be there as witnesses and they need to be there as jurors. And we have to build back that trust. Wow. So. Wonderful, David. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled you're in the position you're in. And I'm certainly going to be watching the 11th District very closely to see your, your impact. So as, as you may know, David, we have a, a segment of the show that we call the Speed Round, where we, we offer up a couple individuals or philosophies and ask you to pick one. And tell us why. So we'll, we'll start with our standard, which is uh, Malcolm or Martin? Martin, all day long. Um, I think, you know, you know, violence may get more attention, but it's not going to solve the problem. You know, very few things get solved with violence. Um, I think the community um, standing up for what's right, that's how you build allies. With violence, you just build uh, more resistance. Very good. Civil rights or economic development? Hmm. That's a that's a tough one. Um, well, first of all, I think uh, economic development is how you uh, you know raising the water lifts all boats. Um, but then again, you know, with, if you don't have civil rights, that basically means people don't have the same opportunity. So I guess I'm going to have to go with civil rights because at the end of the day. Whatever reform you do, you must make sure it's available to everyone. Um, we're one of the few states in the country that does not have affirmative action with the state government. I am going to change that. I promise you that. Um, affirmative action is not about having unqualified people or less qualified people uh, getting state contracts, getting admitted to state schools, and getting state employment. It's about making sure that state resources are uh, equitably distributed to people in the community who are also uh, doing it. So I am going to fight hard to make, to have Washington state join the, the majority of the rest of the union with a uh, affirmative action program in the state for contracting, education, and employment. Very good. And the, the last uh, question, free speech or free enterprise? I don't know how those things are just opposed. Um, you know, free speech um, is uh, how we communicate and how we, um, in our political system, how we are able to stand up. You know, I've done criminal justice reform work, you know, in the former uh, Yugoslavia and Kosovo. I've done it in Uzbekistan, a former satellite state where you cannot speak up. 
you know, and people don't recognize what a privilege we have to, to do so. Um, I, I can never think uh, free speech is something that it's your political rights. It's your constitutional right. Um, free enterprise, I think, is the best system for growing the economy. But if I had to choose between living in a place with a great economy and no political rights or having political rights and not a great economy, I want my political and constitutional rights. I want to be able to stand up and say what I believe. I want to love who I love. I want to, I want to pray to whom I want to pray for. I want to associate who I want to associate with. That, to me, is primary. Take Great answer. Powerful, Thank you, David. Powerful, powerful. Well, I mean, we only, I mean, really, I think two more questions. I'm, I'm curious. First of all, just thank you for your service and your thoughtfulness, David. It's really it's so good to see you. Um, and, and it sounds like you've done some amazing things in South King County, particularly around policing. So I have to ask, just given the, the national context with the black community and policing, just, just commentary, given what you've been able to accomplish locally, what can be learned from what you've done to move us forward as a country? And again, particularly as it relates to the black community and, and policing. Well, I'm going to say something controversial. I'm going to say it here, you know, um, you know, I get it. I get the anger. I get the fear that the black community has with some of the policing. But anger and fear are not great. Uh, uh, it's not. It's not fertile ground for good public policy. So we do. We cannot demonize the police. You know. Yes, there needs to be change, and we need to communicate that change to them. But it cannot be that we want to cancel the police. The police are definitely necessary. For someone who spent 11 years in law enforcement, there is definitely a need for the police. There's also an opportunity to reimagine what policing looks like in the United States. We do not need an armed response to every incident. Well, there's a cat up a tree, you call the police, you get people come with guns. You know, people with mental health issues, people come with guns. You know, people, domestic disputes, people come with guns. You know, I do think there's an opportunity to have a non-lethal response and then if the situation uh, brings itself to it, then to have it. That's the way they do it in London, right? The local police officers are not armed. There's like SWAT teams that are armed. There are armed teams when they're necessary. But you're every day, because right now, because you know the police are armed, if you're going to have a dispute with the police, that suggests that maybe you should be armed. Secondly, I do think that we have a culture now that whenever you're contacted by the police and you are not presently committing a crime, you feel like your rights are violated and you and you fight back. That escalation leads to a lot of the violence. We have a, a rule of law system, which is even if you believe that you have been questioned by the police improperly, the idea is not to fight back, yeah. but, to, uh, but to follow their, their orders and make a complaint afterwards. So a lot of people will see that as being obsequious, but you can tell a lot of, you can see a lot of disputes where the police officers like, uh, can I talk to you for a moment? No, you can't talk to me. I haven't done anything wrong. I get it. I get the anger. But that's also, you know, we could have a system where police have to wait until they're actually watching you commit a crime. But I will tell you, that would be really easy for criminals to get around. And we, a lot of us will feel much less safe. And frankly, the, the most uh, of the crime is going to be in communities of color and low-income communities. Yep. So I don't believe that we're over-policed in those communities. I believe we're under-policed. Yeah. And um, but we need to find a better relationship. We will all benefit if we can one develop a better relationship with the police. We need to be they need to also recognize they have to change. 
but we have to recognize that they are uh, a, a necessary part, you know, of our society. We can reimagine how they do their job, but we can't eliminate them. I don't say defund. I say reallocate. There are amazing groups in King County, mentorship groups with gentlemen and women who some of them who have been incarcerated, some of them who can reach out to youth and show them a different path. Just in the same way we went to that high school. If you remember that high school trip we took? Oh, my gosh. And uh, and how with the hostile reaction, they didn't need to see a bunch of graduate students from Harvard. They needed to learn from people that had been through the system. That's who they were most listened to. And so that's where we, you know, we, it, was, it was pretty uncomfortable, if you recall, right? Yeah. It was not, they were not at all, because they couldn't relate. They couldn't relate. There's a group out here called uh, Choose uh, uh, 180 and Community Passageways. These are gentlemen who themselves have been incarcerated, who now take into the hundreds of youth and young adults returning from the system, employing them, and, you can, and, the, and how successful they are. And how and reaching youth in Seattle and talking to them about a different alternative. That's how we reimagine. We can take money from the police force, not to defund them, but to give it to these mentorship groups. The police come and get involved after crime is committed. These groups get involved and stop crime from being committed. That's how you reimagine. That's okay. how you think outside the box. Yeah, I hear you. So then this leads very nicely into our final question, because at that high school, there was a lot of Daryls in the world, right? And, and you better than anyone else remember when we did the original Invisible Men, all of it was designed around 16-year-old uh, Daryl, a black kid who lives in forgotten USA, you know, this imaginary urban city. And we did that 30 years ago because we didn't think Daryl had enough visibility into people like us, right? Who have gone through similar circumstances. So I'm curious, given everything you've now accomplished, what would the advice be to a contemporary Daryl who lives maybe in South King County, you know, or in the Bronx or in Dorchester, you know, like, you know, what would you say to him to give Daryl that confidence that he can make his way? Just that, you know, is that there, 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 there is a pathway for you. There's a pathway. Some people, some, some people have a steeper hill. Some people have more uh, rough road than others. But if you set your mind on what you want to be and what you want to do, you can accomplish it. It's about finding the resources and being resilient. You know, people that do not give up. You know, I did not at all predict this path. You know, when I was sitting there, I had no idea where my career went. But I wouldn't change a job or I wouldn't change a day of it. Because even in things where I wasn't as successful as I wanted to be, I took a step back, looked at the resources and things that were available to me, and found a new goal. Chasing a goal, you can do more than you ever thought you could. And you'll surprise yourself and surprise others. And as you're going on that route, and when you get there, remember to reach back and grab somebody else and bring Absolutely. them along with you. Yep. Whew. Wow. We just got, we, we just got some serious... Some some serious learning just, just happened right there. David, man, thank you. It's so good to see you. Ian, so good to see you. Tell what did you what did you do after college, Ian? Dude, that's a whole other podcast, my friend. Okay. No, we, we, no, we, no we, I, I went to Teach for America. After HBS, I went to work at Teach for America. I did the crazy thing. Wow. 
Yeah, that's quite crazy. You gave back. That's the first thing you did. No, that I I received much more uh, in that experience. It, it's it set me on a whole different journey, whole different journey. But it's all good, man. That's why I run schools now. You know, because I want to I want to educate all the Darrells and let them know that their possibilities are great. All right. Well, David, thank you very much uh, for appearing on this episode of The Invisible Men. And thank you to our viewers. If you ever want to see any other episodes of The Invisible Men, you can go to www.invisible.men. And my name is Ian Rowe. David, just want to say uh, I've always been impressed and proud of you and um, you know, the, the, the 11th district is lucky to have you, and, I, and I, I'm sure you'll keep the same energy, the same spirit, the same passion for your constituents, and I'm, I mean it. I'm going to keep a very close eye on that, and as you expand your reach into, into more districts and more responsibility, uh, the state of Washington is lucky to have you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for doing this. Uh, thank you for your service, and uh, let's definitely stay in touch. Uh, you know, 30 years is too long. <laughs> well said. Well, thank you, David. All right, Bye, guys. Peace. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 